Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. We have a lot to cover, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. I want to make sure as best as I possibly can to give you a lot of time to discuss what's going on in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 30. The, um, we're still in the Olivet Discourse, so Matthew 24 and 25 is all a part of the Olivet Discourse. So we're in part three of our time together looking at that um, a section of teaching from Jesus right before he goes to his passion, the, the final events of his earthly ministry. Let's quickly remind ourselves where we've, where we've been. So Jesus, over the last two weeks, has been teaching his disciples about the end, right? When will be the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? When will be the end of all things? What will be Jesus' sign at the end? And he's been teaching his disciples specifically in the, last couple, uh, in the last couple of verses in our time last week, about his second coming, about his return. And we learned last week that it's going to be instant. It's going to be immediate. It's going to be something without warning. It's going to be like a thief in the night, like a bolt of lightning flashing across the sky. Last week, we heard direct teaching. Jesus was teaching us directly. This week, Jesus is going to repeat some big ideas that we've heard over the last two weeks through the use of parables. Now, Jesus is a master at using parables, these stories in which there's a, a major point communicated for us to receive and to be transformed by. So uh, you probably won't learn, uh, maybe you may, you may not learn very much new stuff today. A lot of it is going to be kind of clarification uh, and supplement to some things we've already talked about over the last two weeks. So let's find ourselves in Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or young women, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we pray that this morning, as we open up your word, you would meet us here by the power of your spirit. God, we want to know you. We want to be known by you, and we want to have our minds transformed by the power of the gospel. And Lord, I pray for every one of us this morning, that although we get to enjoy great fellowship, although we get to sing wonderful songs, although we get to hear good preaching from our pastor, Lord, I pray that our greatest desire this morning would be to grow in our love for you, 
to grow in our knowledge of you, not just facts about who you are, but to know a person. So Lord, I pray that all of us, and and I pray that I would model this as well, that we would come to your word this morning with a sense of expectation. That when we come to you humble, dependent, trusting in the power of the Spirit, you will change us. You will transform us. You will mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would do that now as we think through these two parables and think about what it means to wait and to work until you return. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first parable this morning is known as the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Your translation may have a little bit of a a different word there. So in our first big idea this morning, what we're going to think through is the idea of waiting. So if you're taking notes, the first point is waiting for the bridegroom. Jesus tells this parable of these ten young women, these ten virgins, these ten bridesmaids. And in in that day, uh, a wedding was an all-day affair. And so these young women would have been waiting for the groom to come. And, and the festivities of the ceremony would lead to the festivities of the wedding feast. But the groom was delayed. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And they waited until the night when they grew drowsy and tired. And so all of them must have assumed that the bridegroom wasn't coming today. Surely he would come tomorrow so we can find ourselves uh, a place to get some rest as we look forward to the coming of the groom. And in the middle of the night, at midnight, Jesus says, there's this call that the bridegroom has come. Now, five of the bridesmaids, five of the young women were wise. Now, why were they wise? They were wise because they brought with them oil. They needed oil for the lamp so that they would trim their lamps and go out and find the bridegroom and go with him into the wedding feast. There were five bridesmaids who were foolish. Why were they foolish? They were foolish because they did not bring oil with them and instead had to go find oil for themselves while the bridegroom was coming, but it was too late. The groom had already come. The door already shut. So the big idea that Jesus is trying to teach you and me through this parable is that watchfulness and preparation for the Lord, watchfulness and preparation for the bridegroom is what it looks like for us as we wait for Jesus' return. And not only that, that that watchfulness and preparation is seen here as wisdom. Wisdom. So you can be smart, you can have a lot of knowledge, you can know a lot of facts and not be wise. Wisdom is this kind of life that puts knowledge into practice rightly, accurately, truthfully. Now, you may think, we talked about waiting and preparing. We, we talked about those things last week. And you would be right. right. We've seen, here we have Jesus repeating his point with these stories. And, and don't miss this idea. I mean, Jesus just talked about this in Matthew 24. He's talking about it again in Matthew 25. So what that, what that kind of clues us into is this idea that if he's repeating it, it's important, and if he's repeating it, we probably are prone to forget it. So so we can get together as the people of God and think through and talk about uh, the, the imminent return of Jesus, 
that Jesus is coming soon. He can come at any moment. We should be ready and we should be watchful and we should be preparing ourselves for his return. We want to be delighted at his return. But give us just a couple of days and we'll start to live as though that's not true. We'll start to forget the reality that Jesus could come at any moment. So Jesus is repeating this for our sake. These wise, these wise bridesmaids or young women had oil prepared for the delayed groom and the foolish ones did not. And their preparedness was rewarded, right? It was rewarded with the feast. These bridesmaids got to enter into the presence of the, the, the marriage party. They got to enter into the wedding celebration. But the foolish women were left outside. They were not known They were not received. I mean, look again at verse 12. It says, he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. It's not as though it's like, I'm sorry, you're too late. The party's already started. It's, I don't know who you are. The imagery is clear, isn't it? Jesus is saying that those who are prepared for his return will rejoice. They'll celebrate. They'll enjoy the reward of paradise in the presence of the bridegroom. And that as a church, you and I, the followers of Jesus, can long for his return with great hope and great joy as we live prepared, as we live our life in a way that is prepared, that is wise. And those who are not found prepared, those who are not living wisely, will miss his return and instead be shut out from his presence forever. Now, while we want to be careful not to look too deeply into the possible connections of Jesus' parables, so uh, parables, just as a general rule, have one big idea, and they want you to get that big idea, and we kind of run into some some issues if we start to detail out every little thing. The use of oil is a very striking feature in the story, isn't it? I mean, verse 3 took their lamps, took no oil. Verse 4, the wise took flasks of oil. Verse 7, all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps with the oil. Verse 8, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Verse 9, there will not be enough for us. Go buy oil for yourselves. Like over and over and over again, the, 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 purpose, the, 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 the purpose of the oil is to show who is living wisely and who is not. Whoever has oil has wisdom. Whoever doesn't have oil does not have wisdom. The key difference here, who has oil, who doesn't. It's the major focus of the parable mentioned over and over. And throughout the scriptures, oil has an image. It's it's used as an image for something. I mean, prophets are anointed with oil. Priests are anointed with oil. Kings are anointed with oil in the same way that they are anointed with with the Spirit. Right, so we think about anointing. We think about this kind of placing of oil on someone's forehead or anointing someone's head with oil. It's a similar language that we see throughout Scripture of how the Spirit comes to rest on people. Benjamin Keach, an early Baptist in England, said from this text, the Spirit of God is that spiritual oil that the wise virgins took in their vessels and in their lamps by which means they were accepted by the bridegroom and the foolish for want or for lack of it, their lamps of profession went out and they were not able to go into the wedding chamber. Now, what does this mean? 
Some people in our church and in many churches live in the orbit, they live around the workings of the Spirit of God. If you're a part of our church, if you're a member of the body of Christ, then there's been this affirmation in you that you have the Spirit, that you've been saved by grace, that the Spirit of God now rests in you and on you, and you've been sealed as a guarantee. And some people just live in the orbit. That they, they, they witness the experiences that the believers have with the Spirit of God. They, they even are recipients themselves of certain blessings from the Spirit of God. But like the seed grown on rocky soil, in themselves there is no real life. It does not really sustain. I mean, it's why, I mean, all of us probably have uh, people in our minds that we can think of who maybe were raised in church, who maybe know some of the answers, but give it some time, and it, it is proven that they don't really know God. They might know the answers to certain questions about our faith, but they don't have the Spirit. In other words, they had some kind of oil, but it wasn't the oil that sustained them all the way to the return of the groom. So then... Wisdom is living with the fullness of the Spirit by faith. Waiting until the last minute to get ready for the Lord like these foolish bridesmaids or these foolish virgins is a foolish plan. So many around us, however, have made it their plan. There's so many around us that think, I'll just do that later. I'll get serious about my faith later. I won't worry about that for now. But it's why Jesus says at verse 12 and 13, or verse 13 rather, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So we need wisdom. And in order to have wisdom, we need the Spirit. Having the Spirit isn't just knowing facts about the gospel. It's not just knowing truths from God's Word. It's knowing the one who is the truth and living in light of who He is and what He's done. Let's read our second parable this morning, starting in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Let's just pause there. Um, The second big idea, second parable is not just waiting, this idea of waiting with preparation and wisdom, but working. So our second parable is all about working for the master. Now, there's different scholars who have tried to do some different uh, mathematics and carrying the one over and things like that to figure out how much is a talent in the first century. A talent is a measure of money. So you have this master and these three servants. He gives this one five talents, this one two talents, and this one one talent. And the, the best guess that I've seen, nobody is you know, super confident about this, but the best guess that I've read over the last week is that a talent is something like 20 years of wages. So one talent, 20 years worth of money for, for like the average worker. So if you give somebody a talent, you're giving them 20 years of what they would earn 
If you're giving someone five talents, you're giving somebody a hundred years of what they would earn. In other words, this is a lot of money. (laughs) This is a lot of money. This is a huge sum of money that this master has seen fit to give to these servants, to entrust to them that they might steward it well, to use it well, to use it wisely. And so we see in this text, look at verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. The one who had five talents doubled his money. Look again at verse 17. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. So these two servants, because they have different abilities, the text says, are taking the talents that that their master has given them and has doubled its value. They were faithful stewards of what the master had given them. They took that talent, they took those treasures, and they did something with it. Now look at verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. This servant did not steward the talent. He dug a hole and he hid it. Almost as if it doesn't exist. His life did not change. His work was no different. He took that thing, that talent, that resource, those treasures that his master gave him, and he put them away. Now let's see what the master says. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now let's just pause very quickly. Five talents, a hundred years worth of wages. And this master receives the five talents and the five talents more and says to his servant, well done, good and faithful servant. He's affirming the servant's faithfulness. He's affirming this servant's stewardship. Then he says, verse 21, you have been faithful over a little. Over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I feel like in any kind of way that you want to break this down, a hundred years worth of wages is not a little. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a lot. And yet the master seems to have a totally different calculus of what's going on. This master has a kind of resource that is unimaginable to say that a hundred years worth of money is a little. Right, verse 22. He also went to the one who had two talents, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered me two talents here. I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So same story. According to his ability, faithful steward of the talents, 
rewarded by his master. Verse 24, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Just pause there. Think about what we've just seen with the first two stewards. They were faithful stewards of what their master had given them. The master welcomed them, affirmed them, set them over much because they were faithful over little. They get to enter into the joy of their master. But it's not just you enter into some joy. The text says, enter into the joy of your master. The one who seemingly has all things, these faithful stewards now get to enjoy all that with him. And yet this steward, this unfaithful one, the one who didn't work with his talents, didn't do anything but bury a hole in the ground, says, well, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. Here, take what's yours. It's the same master. And yet, according to this servant, what he thinks he knows about that servant or about that master, rather, has led him to blame that master for his own disobedience. Right? The master gave him this talent to steward, to manage. And he said, I'm not going to do it. Why? Because of what you are supposedly like, master. So here's your talent. Back to you. I didn't do anything with it. The same one who brings in the faithful stewards with great joy and affirmation and blessing and reward is seen by the disobedient servant as completely different. Now look at verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Translation, this is sarcasm. This is sarcasm. The master is saying like, oh, you know that? Like, you you know what I'm like as the master? You know my work? You know my dealings? You know how I treat other people? Verse 27. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot here about faithfulness to the master. And that's why living as a follower of Christ in the meantime... Right? Living as a follower of Christ until he comes again will not look like passive waiting. It will look like joyful working. These faithful stewards worked. Because they received from their master, it changed their life. It changed what they did. It changed what they were working on. It changed why they were working. The unfaithful servant, however, there was no change. And in fact, there was blame. 
There was frustration. There was fear. In other words, what this parable is trying to teach us, because we've talked so much about waiting, being vigilant, being awake, being prepared, being wise. What does it look like, though? Like, what does your life look like as someone who is ready for Christ's return? Listen to J.C. Ryle talking about these two parables that we've read this morning. He says, The parable of the talents is very much like that of the ten virgins. Both direct our minds to the same important event, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Both bring people before us, the members of the professing church of Christ. The virgins and the servants are one and the same people, but the same people regarded from a different point and viewed on different sides. The practical lesson of each parable is the main point of difference. Vigilance is the keynote of the first parable. So the, the wise women, the wise virgins were vigilant. They were waiting. They were looking. They were prepared. Diligence is that of the second. The story of the ten virgins calls on the church to watch. The story of the talents calls on the church to work. So vigilance is waiting and watching, being prepared. Diligence is not quitting. Remaining faithful. Keeping going. Now what the master has given these servants in many ways is similar to what our master has given us. I mean, he's given you everything. Not just money. He's given you other talents, other resources, other treasures, time. And we see from the good servants that faithfulness in little things leads to opportunities for faithfulness in larger things. That's a pattern in the life of the believer. So do you want to grow in responsibility? Do you want to grow in your capacity as a follower of Jesus? Do you want to grow in what you're able to do and what you're responsible for? Be faithful where you are. Be faithful where you are. Where your faithfulness is proven is not down the road. Your faithfulness is being proven right now. And this is really important because we might think that as teenagers, we're kind of, um, we've kind of got the training reels on. Like you're going to go to school and you're going to go to church and you're going to live in your family and you're going to maybe get a job when you're older. Uh, but that's not really like the real world because you're still under your parents' authority and you're still like living in their home and if you're not faithful to Jesus now, what on earth makes you think that you're going to be faithful to him later? Like, it's not like, oh, when I become an adult, then I'm going to get serious about following Jesus. I don't want to be serious about following Jesus now. I don't really want to count the cost of what it might look like, what it might cost me to, to be a faithful follower, a faithful steward of God's treasures that he's given to me. I'll do that later. When they're like, you're already proving what you will do later by what you do right now. This is the whole story, the parable of the talents. These faithful servants received the approval of their master. Well done, good and faithful servant. They received more, more than they could imagine. The joy of their master. I mean, they got to become like the master in a very real way. One day, the joy of Christ will be our joy perfectly. 
If we're united to Jesus by faith, when he comes again, we will be like him in a glorious way. And all of the promises that we taste in part today will be ours in full then. That's the, that's the hope. That's the reward for diligence in this life. Now, the unfaithful servant knows the master, but his knowledge is warped. His view of the master has led to inaction, to disobedience, to apathy. One commentator says it like this. It's almost as if the servant was saying, and as the Christian might say, Oh Lord, you're such a sovereign master and unmoved mover that whatever I did with this talent wouldn't really matter to you anyway, so I did nothing. In other words, this unfaithful servant and many, many who claim to follow Jesus cloak their laziness behind their solemn God talk excuses. I have a clear example of this in my own mind. I remember when I was an intern at another church, I never shared the gospel with people. I never evangelized. I never met people on my college campus or out in the community and shared the gospel with anybody. Uh, and, And ultimately, it was because I had a bunch of fear of man. I didn't know all of the answers. I was afraid that I would be embarrassed. I didn't know what to say. And so how I defended my disobedience, because God has called all of us to make, make disciples. He's called all of us to go and make disciples wherever we are. And the way that I defended my disobedience was this. Well, I teach teenagers at this church that I work at twice a week, and easily half the people that are in that room are not Christians. So I'm evangelizing. So I don't need to worry about actually going and building relationships with lost people and sharing Christ with them because I'm already doing that. So I was using my confidence in God to somehow disobey God. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But the master will have none of that. Not in my life and not in yours. The servant's faulty view of the master was no excuse for his inaction, his omission. And students, we cannot want this. We cannot want to try to sneak around the authority of the master who has given us every good thing. We can't imagine to want what the master has told us, has shown us in so many ways in his word, in his church what ultimately will lead to our destruction. Now remember, all of this is, is, is Jesus explaining and teaching and clarifying that you don't know the day or the hour. You cannot plan your faithfulness. It's not as though you know Jesus is coming back next week, so you have five days to really goof off and then two days to get it right. It's not how it works. And often, we find ourselves trying to claim that we don't know something or that we should have known something or that we, we, in order to really be faithful to Jesus, we really needed to know this or understand this. So we lead just finally to some concluding takeaways. So I'm going to say this, and you may want to write this down. I'll, I'll explain it. You and I, as followers of Jesus, need to kill the vice of religious 
curiosity. Kill the vice of religious curiosity. If those foolish bridesmaids would have known what time the groom would come back, then surely, they would say, we would have been ready. If that, if that, if that uh, steward, if that servant had the right understanding of the master and had a, a knowledge of when the master would return, then surely he would have been faithful like the other ones. If you wouldn't have given me that woman, Adam says, then I would not have fallen. There are some things we may not know in this life because they are not for us to know. And our lack of knowledge on those things is no excuse for faithlessness. As fallen human beings, this is another commentator, as fallen human beings, we have an innate craving for the forbidden fruit that comes from the tree of knowledge. And if I'm honest, I, I can feel this in my own heart, that I feel like I need to have God's worthiness proven to me in order for me to be faithful to him. There are certain things about my faith, there are certain things about my life, there are certain things about the situations that are going on in my life that I don't understand, I don't comprehend, I don't have the right understanding of why it's meaningful or important to me or why this terrible situation could be happening. And until I get all of my questions answered, then I'm going to withhold faithfulness from God. Some things are not for us to know. And we often bristle at this. So it leads us to find out for our own sake, for our own gain. It's why gossip is so attractive. That's all gossip is, right? Is you trying to find out things that you're not supposed to know. They're not for you to know. We all crave hidden knowledge that's not for us. And these two parables are trying to shine a light on that. Instead, as the return of Christ makes evident, we must trust the God who is all knowledge and pursue all that he has given us. So kill curiosity. This kind of religious curiosity that you want all of your questions answered before you are faithful to the Lord. Your knowledge of God does not change God. He's holy. He's worthy. He's your Lord. And if you've confessed your faith in him as the Lord of your life, that is sufficient for you to render your whole life into his service. Now, the beautiful thing is, we don't have time to get on this, but the beautiful thing is, how do we know God? Through faithfulness. How do you get to know God truly? How do you get to come to love him more deeply? How do you come to be more enamored by his beauty and his wonder and his glory? Through faithfulness, through obedience. That's what we see with these two faithful servants. They get to enter into the joy of their master as a reward for their faithful living. So kill the vice of religious curiosity. Second thing, and then we'll split up. Recognize that time is short. Recognize that time is short. 
We can begin to wait and work in the power of the Spirit today. You can do that today. And the more we wait and work, the more we might come to know the God who prepared that work and equips us for the work, who reveals himself in the work and promises to use that work for his glory and for your good. So what is that work for you? The time is short. The day is long spent. What has God given you? What talents has he given you? What treasures has he given you? What tasks has he given you as a follower of Christ? I mean, he's given all of us so many things. He's given all of us so many gifts. But, but let me just give you three kind of buckets that you might need to put some faithfulness, think, some, some, some faithful obedience in. Right? The first, maybe that work for you is deep thinking. Maybe it has to do with your mind. Maybe you've disobeyed the command to love God and to love his word and to see the word as more valuable than gold. So study. Don't be discouraged. This isn't a rebuke. This isn't condemnation. This is an invitation to know the one who loves you most. And he's revealed himself in his word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Maybe that work for you is not mental, however. Maybe it has to do with a deep kind of practice. It has to do not with your head, but with your hands. There are things that you know you ought to be doing as a faithful follower of Jesus, and you're just not doing them. Or maybe there are things that you are doing with these hands that you should not be doing. Don't put it off. Have the conversation. Open that Bible for yourself, maybe for the first time in a long time. Ask someone that you trust for the help that you need. Maybe for you that work is not your head. Maybe it's not your hands. Maybe that work is one of deep dependence. Maybe it has to do with your heart. So pray. Speak to God. And my encouragement to you in going to God in prayer is, is this. Your prayer life will be frustrating and boring and seemingly insignificant if your main goal in prayer is to be good. In other words, when you go to pray, fight the temptation that you need to clean yourself up to ask God in a way that is holy, mature. The goal of prayer is to get before the Lord not as good, but as honest. Like God is able to handle your frustrations with him. God is able to handle your wondering. God is able to handle your hurt. God is able to handle your sorrows. He's actually inviting you to, to bring those things to him. But so often, and I feel this, I feel this. I'm not, I'm not just getting on to you or I, I'm telling myself, I need to hear this too. That when I go to God to pray, it needs to be me who goes to pray. It needs to be you that goes to pray. Not this version of you that seemingly has everything put together, but knows that we need to make these requests because that's what we're called to do. 
God, I really hope that you would help in this situation. Lord, I know that you're faithful and that you're good and that you're sovereign and that all things are in your hands. And so, Lord, we trust you. And then I immediately go to try to do things in my own strength and in my own power. But I feel like I'm going to have God's backing because I asked him first. Go to God in prayer and be honest. Not good. Not put together. Not cleaned up. Real. So I want to pray for you. Hopefully you'll spend some time kind of debriefing on these things in your groups. We'll come back at the end with some announcements. Let's pray.